Well, good morning, church, and uh, thank you, uh, Pastor Trina. Um, hey, if you get a chance today, uh, can I encourage you to thank some of our pastoral team and people who are just volunteering, helping serve over the last uh, day and a bit. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into our journey training, and so Trina, we are really grateful for the work that you put into that as well too, and for the lives that are being impacted as we kind of dig down into this journey that we're on as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Well, last weekend, we started a series called Name Above All Names. Names are important, aren't they? They fulfill a whole bunch of different roles in our lives, uh, and uh, they sit out there serving different purposes. For example, uh, names have a way of identifying or distinguishing one person from another. My name is Dave, and there's a whole bunch of different names that sit out there in this place today. You know, names have a way of... Uh, uh, individualizing or making one person, you know, quite different than another individual. Now, my granddaughter, whom I am just besotted with, her name is Chicago Wonder. And it is really, it's quite a unique name. Now, we all kind of stood around waiting, wondering what Jesse and Camille were going to call this little girl. And uh, they called her Chicago Wonder. Now, there's a, whole, there's, a, there's a whole reason for some of that as well, too. You know, uh, names, uh, they, uh, they can represent who we are. Names can call something out in us. Names identify some of our family heritage as well too. And so your last, now sometimes our first names are passed along from, you know, one member to another. You know, uh, we don't kind of get it a lot today, but sometimes, you know, you'll get people who are called David the third or the fourth, and it's just kind of the name they get. It's being passed on from a, a father and a grandfather and a great-grandfather. Uh, I love my dad. Glad I didn't get his name. His name's Reg. Uh, and his name was Reg as well, too. There must have been a real lot of pressure to name me Reg, but I was given the name David. But sometimes our names are given to us with a sense that they're going to, it's, it's been given with a special reason and a purpose. You know, my granddaughter, whose name is Chicago Wonder, was given to her uh, in one sense, it was a way of honoring me. I had followed God's call in my life to Chicago to uh, to go to Bible college, and and so and from that there has been a blessing that's kind of followed with our families as well too. And so they've called her Chicago in the sense that hey, it was an honor to me. But th th they're speaking these words over her life that as she grows up and follows Jesus, that she will be a blessing where she goes as well too. You see, our names have different reasons. They identify us, they call out things in us, they represent things about us. Sometimes they have a lot to say about maybe what our character or our personality is. And last weekend as we launched this series called Name Above All Names, we discovered that God also has a name. Uh, a name by which he has identified himself as. You know, there's lots of different uh, words or um, names that are given to describe who God is, but there is only one name by which God calls himself, and we find that early up in the Scriptures in Exodus chapter 3. Donna was speaking about that last week with us, but it was the name, the, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, or sometimes translated as Yahweh. Now, how did it come about? Well, God is having this conversation with Moses. In fact, God is calling Moses, uh, giving him a task that he's going to do. And Moses is feeling a little bit daunted about all of this. And so in the course of this, he boldly says, well, who am I going to tell uh, the Israelites who you are? What, what is your name? And this is the name that, um, that, uh, that God calls out or gives to himself. He says, you say to the Israelites, the Lord's, capital L-O-R-D, 
Whenever we see that, we know that he's talking about his own personal name. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from one generation to generation. See, in that moment, God was identifying himself by his own personal name. He calls himself the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. It's the name Yahweh. And what was God endeavoring to convey to Moses in this moment? Well, in this really profound moment, as Moses is standing in front of this bush that doesn't burn up, God is speaking to him from this bush. He's in, he is using this name, the Lord or Yahweh, to, to define who he is. The, the name Yahweh means to be, to exist, to cause to become or to come to pass. In this moment, God is declaring himself to be existent, self-existent. In other words, he is defining himself. He is calling himself out. He is naming himself as the one who was and is and who will always be. He is Yahweh. Now, as we sit here this morning or as we watch online, how well do you know Yahweh? How well do you know Yahweh and his character and his hearts? Well, I want to say this morning that like he just did with Moses in Exodus chapter 3, God invites us still today to know him personally. He invites us to know him in a, in a rather intimate way. And how do we do that? Well, as we read and study the scriptures, as we read the stories of various people throughout the scriptures, we come to know something about the, the nature of God. We, we know what his name is. But as we read these stories of other people, as we read their encounters that were often incredibly personal, uh, we come to learn other things about who God is. And one such story that uh, I want us to focus on for just a few moments this morning is a story that is found in Genesis 16. And it involves a promise and a mistreated woman. If you've got a Bible, you can find yourself, uh, find your way to Genesis chapter 16. The passages will be on the, on the screens as well too. But before we get there, I, I want to kind of give us a, a, a back end to some of this story. You see, this story that contains a promise finds its way all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, some, some four chapters prior to all of this. And, and in the midst of all of this, uh, the story begins to unfold with God choosing a man by the name of Abraham. We know him as Abraham, but we'll call him Abraham today. And, and God chooses Abraham and gives him a promise. He says to this man who didn't have any kids, who was at the age of 75, and he says to him that uh, out of this one man, out of he and his wife, Sarai, he says to him that he was going to make him a father of a great nation. Remember, he didn't have any kids. He's going to make him a father of a great nation, and through him all the nations in the world would be blessed. The only catch for Abraham at this point was that he didn't have kids. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 16, God has made a promise. He reiterates it again in Genesis chapter 15. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 16, 10 years has expired and this promise still hasn't come about. There are no dirty nappies. There are no sleepless nights tending to a, a newborn infant and both Abraham and Sarai aren't getting, or in their own eyes, they're no closer to seeing this promise fulfilled and they're becoming a little impatient with God. And this is how the story starts in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, 
Abraham's wife had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servants. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abraham agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abraham as a wife. So Abraham had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Now, I want to just pause there for a moment. I want us to notice a couple of things about this story before we continue on. And the first thing uh, I think we've got to note is the obvious personal pain that Sarai is experiencing due to her barrenness. For 10 years, she had waited with a sense of expectation, waiting and hoping on God. You know, for her, the, the, the sense of not having any children in that culture uh, put her in such a place that she, she wasn't an outcast, but there was this sense that it was obvious. There was a stigma that was attached to her life that she, she didn't have any children. And she's becoming impatient. You know, Proverbs 13, 12 says something to us about hope deferred. It says it makes the heart sick. And maybe some of us here and online, we, we get that. We know what that's looked like to, to wait, to wait on with hope. To, to wait with the, with the hope of maybe having children. To, to wait with a sense of maybe being married one day. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Well, Sarah had obviously grown so incredibly tired of waiting. And so she comes to her husband and she, she has this light bulb moment where she thinks, you know what? Ah, you know what? Maybe there's a way throughout all of this. Maybe God is wanting me to take matters into my own hands. And this is how we're going to do it. And so she encourages Abraham to engage in what you would simply call a, a surrogate mother arrangement. That's not something that we're that familiar with here. We know about it. And whilst we might have reservations about all of that, it was a common cultural thing in that day. It was a normal practice. And according to that custom, the law allowed a man to bear children by his maidservants and to rightfully then to claim him as his own. And so with her faith weakening just a little bit, Sarai suddenly feels it necessary to share her husband with another woman, seeing that maybe this might be the solution to her problem. Well, there's a second thing I want us to note in all of this, and it's got to do with her husband. See, Abraham listens to his wife, and he heeds her instructions. Now, a godly wife is a blessing. And many a man who has been blessed with a godly wife has lived with the the joy of of the, the wisdom that comes from being married to such a woman. Yet no wife is infallible. And in this story, Abraham was was responsible too for his own sin of heeding the wise, unbelief-based advice of his wife. You know, at this point, he could have said to his wife, Sarai, sweetie, sweetie, I realize, I realize that you are anxious to have a child. You know, I am, I am, I am wanting that as well too. But you know what? Let's not, let's keep trusting in God. Let's keep waiting on God. Let's not engage in this cultural practice of the day. Let's keep our trust in God rather than reverting to maybe our own choices or ways of making this come about. But he didn't. He didn't act in that way. And 
he too approached this problem of having no children by leaving God out of the equation. Now, however unselfish may have been the motives of Abraham and Sarai and perhaps even of Hagar in carrying out this plan, the reality is it was bound to create problems. I mean, we sit here and we think, well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that this is going to create all kinds of issues. Well, what happens? Genesis chapter 4, it unfolds a little bit more. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abraham, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now she's pregnant and she treats me with contempt. The law will show who's wrong, you or me. Abraham replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. You know, this is like something, uh, you know, out of, you know, out of uh, the, the soap operas. Something that kind of happens in the school environment. You can imagine, you know, we kind of roll our eyes at this a little bit. You know, when Hagar feels pregnant, she immediately begins to think that she is more important than her, uh, than her, uh, than her mistress. The, the, sorry, than her maid, than, than the person that she is the maidservant for. And she begins to treat Sarai with contempt. But all this do is just create problems. And now you've got Sarai feeling undoubtedly completely jealous to the core and she's feeling miserable for having even suggested this entire idea to her husband. And Abraham's feeling miserable because he's kind of caught in the middle of all this being blamed for the entire situation and he regrets even having listened to his wife. And where's Hagar? Well, she's feeling miserable too because she's simply the servant girl. She She is the one that's being caught up in all of this mess. And feeling incredibly mistreated. This surrogate mum decides to run away. And she heads in the direction of Egypt. She's going home. Now some of us sitting here today. Some of us watching. You know exactly what this is like. Because maybe wherever you're at. Or what your situation might be. You've got a sense of what it feels like to be mistreated. You know, maybe it's a job situation where your boss or the other members of the team, they're making life incredibly difficult for you. And whilst you need that job, you, you hate your job. You're miserable in this job. And, and you just wish that you could kind of run from this entire environment. Or maybe it's a family situation where there's a, there's a conflict with your spouse or it's a sibling. And it's become incredibly conflicted and painful for you as, as, as you're in this environment. Or maybe it's a relational tension or an issue that sits out there with somebody else and, and, and all you feel like doing is fleeing. Just like Hagar, to a place where maybe you might find some peace, some rest and some refreshments. Well, if that's your story today, if that's your situation, then I'm encouraging you to hang on in here in this story because there is hope in this story. There's encouragement that comes from this story. You see, as the story unfolds, the fact that maybe Hagar was less blameworthy than either Abraham or Sarai in this unfolding saga is maybe indicated by the way in which God treats her. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, it says... The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. And the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? To which she replied, 
I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she replied. Now, we aren't told in the scriptures why Hagar stopped in this exact place. Perhaps she was just simply exhausted from her journey. It was a long way back to Egypt. Or maybe she was too afraid to leave this particular place, this water source. And so she was clinging on to this well that she found herself there and she was too afraid to move. You know, whatever a reason, the story tells that the angel of the Lord appeared and spoke to her personally. Now, who was this angel? This is the very first instance of this phrase in the scriptures, the angel of the Lord. I mean, as you read it, you get this obvious sense that there was a physical presence right there with Hagar. As one person might talk to another person, this angel of the Lord was physically present with her. So this idea that maybe it was just a voice in the wind or a spiritual impression probably really doesn't hold much water because as the context begins to work its way out in verse 13, Hagar actually identifies who the angel of the Lord is and she, she singles it out as being God. So who was this angel of the Lord? Well, it was a, a pre-incarnate, most likely it was a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus Christ himself. And here's what I want us to note from this. This is beautiful. Because if you find yourself in a situation where maybe you are being mistreated, hang on to this. Look at what God does to Hagar, who was nothing more in that context, a, a maidservant or a slave who was now pregnant with Abraham's child. See, I want us to note that this first appearance of the angel of the Lord came to a mistreated single mother-to-be, and he calls her by name. Isn't that beautiful? He says, Hagar. He doesn't call, he doesn't say she or, hey, you. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant. He calls her by name. You know, though he called and already spoken to Abraham, and given him a special promise for a special work, this story shows us that God is not only interested in those that he singles out and says, you're going to do something special for me. God is actually interested in every person, even an unlikely individual such as Hagar and the child that she would bear. What did God say to Hagar? The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I'll give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all of his relatives. Wow. It's quite a statement to make over this one girl, isn't it? And if you know your biblical history, you will know that uh, the Arab people, the the nation of the Arab people have come out of Hagar, out of Ishmael. But here's really what I want us to focus upon. You see, God actually had a plan for Hagar. He comes to this single mother-to-be and uh, to this woman who was carrying this child who would be called Ishmael, she comes to Hagar with a plan that involved both grace and a rebuke. Let's start with the rebuke. What's God say to her? 
Well, in this moment, God is dealing with Hagar's pride by reminding her that she is still Abraham's wife and she is Sarai's maidservant. It's about putting her in her rightful place. You see, there had been this sense in Hagar that her head had gotten a little bit big. She's like, you know what? I'm pregnant and you're not. And God's kind of dealing with some of this pride in her life. She, she may have been pregnant and Sarai not, but that did not make her superior in any way. And so what does God do? He instructs her to return and to submit to Sarai. Now, we read that and we don't think twice about that. But can you imagine yourself being, uh, you've, you've fled from a situation where you were being mistreated. And God is now calling you to kind of go back into this situation where most likely nothing had really changed for Sarai. In fact, probably Abraham or Abraham and Sarai were sitting around muttering together about this one girl that they've given everything to and she's just run off. Well, Sarai's coming back into this same environment. Nothing has changed. So what does God do after giving her a rebuke? I actually, he showers her with grace. Knowing that it was going to be tough, And to encourage her with this hard step, God reveals his grace by offering to her a staggering blessing. See, he tells her that her unborn son would be the father of uncountable descendants. Like the promise that was given to Abraham, she too would give birth to a son who would be the father of many nations. Can you see God's mercy and grace? being displayed in this story it's a servant girl abused and mistreated used and then almost thrown aside and yet god reassures her in her moment of distress by telling her that he hears he knows what that she is going through he hears the torment that she has endured he hears her inward groans he hears her frustration and he takes pity on her life because he is the god who hears He says to Hagar, you are to call him Ishmael. Because that name Ishmael will remind you that I am the God who hears. That must have been so incredibly comforting for Hagar in that moment. Well, how did she respond? We're told in verse 13, thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Belahire Roy. Let me repeat that. <laughs> that well was named Belahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. And it can still be found today between Kadesh and Beret. So Hagar gave Abraham a son and Abraham named him Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Ten years had transpired. God still hadn't come true on the promise that he had given to Abraham and Sarai, but God was still at work. See, Hagar, in response to to God's revelation, what does she do? This revelation, this promise, this this incredible personal encounter that she has, she suddenly ascribes to God a name. She calls him, in the Hebrew, El-Roy, which literally just means the God who...
who sees. See, was this just Hagar's experience in the scriptures? Well, no. She's the one that calls it out. She's the one that ascribes to God this Hebrew name, El Roy. Uh, but others experience, have experienced the same thing. You know, I think of uh, a few generations down the track of, of, uh, of a king, a shepherd boy, King David. In Psalm 34, he says, The eyes of the Lord's, capital L-O-R-D, the eyes of Yahweh watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help. Solomon, his son, the next generation, said something similar in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. He said, the Lord, capital again, Yahweh, the Lord, is watching everywhere, keeping his eye on both the evil and the goods. You see, like Hagar and like David and Solomon, we too can be confident that we follow a God who sees all that is going on in our lives. He is our Roy. And just in case maybe you're sitting here or watching today and you're wondering, well, is that really true? We see it over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 121, we are told that God, Yahweh, uh, never slumbers nor sleeps. He's always watching. That blows my mind to think about all of that. And then in Psalm, 130, in Psalm 139, we, we, we are told these words. O Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I am far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything that I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. He sees that about me. He sees that in every one of us in this room. He sees that about everyone who's watching the line. This statement is made true about God and the way in which he sees everything that happens in this world. And so if God can see everything that happens before it even happens in life, then surely he can see the things that are unfolding or are happening in our lives as they, as they occur moment by moment, day by day. Hagar calls well, she ascribes to God, she gives him this new name, and she says, He is El Roy, the God who sees. You know, we assume from this story that Hagar, and rightfully so, we returned to both Abraham and Sarah. She was obedient to what God had told her to do. And we know that uh, simply because of how the story unfolds. I'm sure it was an awkward moment of kind of returning and acknowledging what she had done was wrong and somewhere in all of that we don't know the details but it appears that the three of them then resolved to live amicably together as the situation would permit and when this child was born we're told Abraham in obedience to this revelation that he's received from Hagar the only reason Abraham's heard about this is that obviously Hagar has gone back and she has said Abraham and Sarai you, you won't believe what happens but I was on my way back to Egypt and I stopped right there at this well and this is what happened to me. This child is then born and what's Abraham do? In obedience to what God had told Hagar and Hagar had referred to them, he names this child Ishmael and he raised him as his own son. So what does this story today teach us about the character and the heart of God? 
What's it revealed to us about God's nature? And even more importantly, how do we apply that then into the situations of our own lives? Well, to those of us today who are feeling anxious or find ourselves weighed down by all kinds of doubts and fears, God sees. He sees what is going on in our lives. He sees what we are concerned about. He knows and he too is concerned. And so he says to us today, cast all of your cares upon me. Make use of my strength for your situation because I truly care about your life. To those of us who might be feeling abandoned, God sees. We need to be confident that God is watching over uh, our own circumstances in our lives. And we have to remember that he is just as close as a prayer away. And so we need to tell him how we're feeling. God sees and he hears everything. And so we can be assured that the words that we utter, whether we utter them in dismay, whether we utter them in pain, out of despair, out of praise or out of thanks, he hears and he sees, so keep on praying. Or to those of us who find ourselves under attack or facing difficult situations in life, God sees. He sees all things. And we have to remind ourselves that in those moments that there is a righteous judge who sees everything and one day he will bring uh, his own judgment to bear on these situations. Why do we know that? Because he is a God who sees. And to those of us who feel like running, I want to remind you that God sees. He sees. You see, is there a situation in your life today where this truth maybe can be applied with great application? You see, maybe for some of us, maybe for some of us as we hear this story, our situation is that we are feeling tempted There's such a great temptation in our own lives to want to take matters into our own hands and to bring about some kind of a resolution. You know, our heart aches to be married or our heart aches for children or our heart waits, just, just, just breaks for our own financial circumstances in our own lives, whatever it might be. Often there can be a temptation for us to want to take matters into our own hands and to kind of change the situation. You know, after all, there, there is this statement or a phrase that's been coined out there that we hear that we sometimes buy into that says, God helps those who help themselves. But I want to urge you today that if this is your situation, you're facing something in your own life and there is a temptation to want to take matters into your own hands, I want to urge you today to, to resist that temptation. I want to urge you not to be wise in your own eyes. And God's word says, it reminds us to trust the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding, but in all of, ways, but in all of our ways to, know, to acknowledge him. And what does he promise to do? He promises to make our paths straight. You see, it's easy for us to look back upon Abraham and Sarah's life and go, you know what, what were you doing? You know, if only how different maybe this might have been if you hadn't taken matters into your own hands. And so I urge you today, if that's your situation, resist the temptation to be wise in your own eyes. Don't take matters into your own hands. 
Or maybe for some of us today, there is the reality that we have taken matters into our own hands. And what it's done is it's just created a mess in life. And it hasn't made, in one sense, our own situation any better. You see, that was the, that was the case for Adam and Eve. It was the situation for Abraham and Sarai. It was the same for Moses as well too. See, when God came to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, it was some 40 years after Moses had taken matters into his own hands. He was aggrieved by the way in which the Egyptians were treating his own people. And so he thought, you know what? I'm going to bring a solution to all of this. He stepped in. He killed uh, one of the taskmasters there. And uh, then he ended up fleeing from his life. He ended up in a messy situation. And where did Moses spend the next 40 years of his life? In a wilderness experience tending sheep. Now, God's grace is still in all of those stories. Adam and Eve. Abraham and Sarai. Moses. You know, one of the great things about the scriptures is that it kind of gives us the entire picture. It gives us the successful moments. It gives us the moments where there's lots of pain and hurt as well too. There's rebuke in many of these stories, but there's also God's grace. So maybe you find yourself in a messy situation today. And what's the response? The response is to actually call out to El Roy. To acknowledge that, God, you've seen my situation. I can't hide anything from you. You see that I've taken matters into my own hands thinking that, you know what, maybe I am wiser and, you know, this is just the right thing to do. God, this is a mess. And so I come before you today and I say, God, would you take this messy situation? I, 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 I repent of what I have done. I give it back to you and I say, God, would you make something beautiful out of this mess? See, he's Elroy. He's the God who sees. He is the God who delights in taking our messed up situations and transforming them and bringing good out of those things. Or maybe today, the pain of what you are going through is just so great you feel like running. I get that. I think we all get that. You know, there's been plenty of situations in my life where I've just felt like, you know what, I just want to get out of this. But you know, it's into the midst of that we have to remind ourselves that we don't go through these situations on our own, that, that, that God is our Roy. He is the God who sees. And so instead of running from this situation, we need to run into the arms of the one who sees. Yeah, I know it can be hard. You know, there is some sense, there's that sense, same thing for Hagar. Like, you know, if I just get away from this, I'm going to find peace and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be in a space where this doesn't bother me anymore. The reality is that Hagar ended up at a well, still feeling mistreated and distraught by her situation, all on her own. Where did God meet her? There's the beauty in that. There's God's grace. God didn't wait for Hagar to return to Abraham and Sarai before he extended to her his grace. He met her at a point of need. And maybe for you today, you are running from your situation. Can I just encourage you to run into the arms of the one who sees? You see, no matter what your situation, whether it's in my life, whether it's in your life, as we think about Yahweh, the one who is self-existent. 
as we think about uh, this name that was given to him by Hagar, Elroy. You know, we can be encouraged today. Whatever situation we might find ourselves by the truth that God is Elroy. He is the one who sees. You know, he may not instantly fix our situation or our predicaments. But we never have to doubt his love or his care because he is the God who sees. He sees into my life. He sees into the situations of every life scattered throughout this room and watching online. He is the God who sees. He's genuinely interested. He wants to engage in all of that. He cares. He is the God who sees. Let me pray for us. Lord Yahweh, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Your name is above all names. Elroy, today we thank you that you see our lives. You see our situations. You see our hurt and our pain. It hasn't snuck up on you. You see it on. And so we just acknowledge today that we are encouraged that you see all of that. And into our situations that maybe we are facing today. Father, where we are attempted to want to take matters into our own hands. Or whether it's a mess that we've got in our lives or it's just the temptation that we, we just want to run. We just acknowledge that you see all these things. God, would you give people here in this room today courage? Courage to stand firm in the midst of what might be a difficult situation. To keep looking to you, to, to keep holding on to you as the one who sees this. Father, we ask that you might be the solution in some of those uh, challenging situations. And that at our points of need, in the midst of our cries, that God, you would respond into all of that. Lord, where there might be a mess, God, would you be the one that brings grace into the midst of all of that? Would we see you at work in a powerful way? Because you are the God who sees. for those that might be tempted to run. God, help us to run into the arms of the one, into your arms with our situation. God, thank you that you can hold all of these situations in tension. God, we thank you that you are omniscient and you, that you are also omnipresent. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. We honor you today. We lift high your name. 
Elroy, the God who sees. Father, I pray that we'd have a great sense of this truth, of this reality in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.